0: Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 12. I'm Terence O'Grady and today's episode will be the first of two on Beethoven's first published string quartets from Opus 18. It might have struck some observers as a bit strange that Beethoven had not attempted to publish any string quartets before his 27th year. He had composed and published quite a few chamber works by this time, piano quartets, string trios, and piano trios among others and some of these, especially the piano trios, had been well-received. But string quartets were different. They were, something like symphonies, considered to be a weightier genre. A composer would be wise to commit only his or her most serious thoughts, or at least most compelling thoughts, to a first series of string quartets, because recent music history and the weight of tradition, that tradition headlined by the string quartets of Haydn and Mozart, bore down heavily on the shoulders of any young composer. The care with which Beethoven finally approached his task can be seen by the extensive sketches he prepared for the first four quartets of Opus 18. It seems clear from this and other evidence that, once committed to mastering the string quartet, he felt compelled to dedicate a great deal of time and energy to the endeavor for a year and a half. We'll begin our investigation of the Opus 18 quartets with number 3 in D major, the first to be composed. Almost from the beginning, the Opus 18 quartets strike the listener as both more artful and more personal, compared to the earlier violin sonatas and even the more formidable string trios. Movement 1 in D major, a la Brevin marked Allegro, begins with a rare and fairly dramatic gesture, an unaccompanied ascending minor 7th in the first violin, starting on the 5th of the scale, and outlining a dominant 7th chord in the key. After that, supported by sustained chords in the other strings, it makes its way gradually down an octave, generally alternating 8th note patterns and whole notes. Eventually it descends even farther, finishing off on the 3rd scale degree. Joseph Kerman, in his excellent book on the string quartets, makes the point that the opening theme is longer than usual and in one continuous phrase, rather than divided into separate motivic units or smaller phrases, as is the case in so many of the composer's early chamber works. After the initial statement of the theme, which as you heard, concludes with a long, yearning lower neighbor tone on E-sharp resolving up to F-sharp, the viola begins the theme. This time, it will be the subject of imitation at the octave, taken up first by the second violin and followed by the first. After arriving at an E minor chord, the ascending minor 7th motive disappears for some time, replaced by a solo first violin passage that meanders a bit as it extends the E minor tonality. At this point, it appears as if we're in the modulatory transition since we seem to be touching briefly on a whole series of different tonal areas. Still, that ascending minor 7th motive stubbornly reasserts itself in the cello from time to time, so we never completely lose sight of the opening subject. And several measures later, we actually find ourselves back in D major, the original tonic key. But eventually, an effective new triplet-based transitional motive is introduced, along with some other distinctive new rhythmic motives, and since we're once again on the move tonally, we're now increasingly confident that we really are in the modulatory transition. And if the conventions of sonata form hold up, we should be on our way to A major, the key of the dominant and the normal key for the second subject. Here's an excerpt starting right after the 10-bar first subject where the viola takes up the theme, leading into what seems like a modulatory passage but which ultimately ends up right back in D major. This is followed by a more conventional modulatory transition which introduces those new triplet based motives and finally does end up actually taking us to the new key. Might have noticed that at the end of that excerpt, with the modulatory transition driving robustly in the direction of A major, the normal second subject key, that there was a bit of hesitancy and uncertainty. Beethoven inserts an unexpected diminished seventh chord, and it resolves in an unexpected way. The result of all of this, and it won't really be a shock at this point, is that Beethoven is about to present his second subject, a brief one, only eight measures long, starting in C major rather than A major. Here is the second subject, notable especially for its weak beats for Sandi, my excerpt starting a few measures earlier, where Beethoven cleverly transports us from the key we were expecting to the key we weren't. As you heard, the second subject is brief, generally homophonic in texture, and rather quiet, except for the weak beats forzandi. But what follows is a much more robust passage, featuring accented whole note chords and staccato passages in quarter notes and eighth notes. This new, more aggressive section is, of course, the closing section, and it's in A major, the key of the dominant that we expected in the first place and which Beethoven started preparing us for by veering in the direction of A minor in the second half of the second subject. So, it has taken a while, but we have now finally arrived at the expected key of the dominant. But we've seen Beethoven pull these sorts of tricks before, and at this point, it barely qualifies as a surprise. So, we've made it up to the closing section so far, but this exposition, like so many others, has one more section, The Codetta, here it is. It begins rather quietly with a lovely little four bar phrase in the viola beginning with a sixteenth note triplet in just one of many segments of luxurious counterpoint that makes the listener grateful for the additional violin not available in the string trios we discussed in a previous episode. The viola is then joined by the second violin for a repeat of the phrase while the first violin moves up an octave to replicate the second violin's flowing contrapuntal accompaniment. Then a new idea is introduced, based on an undulating flow of 8th note triplets traded back and forth, often in inversion, between 1st and 2nd violins. It again begins quietly, but picks up volume as it increases in textural activity. We really do expect to end securely in A major at this point, and we do get a conclusive enough cadence in that key, but the exposition is not quite done. Instead we hear three more forte chords with the cello moving up by half steps each time, presenting us with a rather confused picture of exactly what key we're supposed to be in. But it all goes by fairly quickly, of course, and the first ending soon takes us back to the opening of the exposition with the ascending minor seventh interval in violin one that started the whole movement off. In the development section that follows, Beethoven focuses primarily on the first theme and the triplet motive from the modulatory transition, and of course modulates widely in the process. The recapitulation follows logically enough, with the second subject coming back initially in F major, but following the earlier example, moving fairly quickly to D minor before the closing section explodes on the scene in D major, the original tonic. The new coda makes a reference back to the original thematic idea in the unexpected key of G minor, and the second subject also makes a brief appearance in the even more unexpected key of E flat major. But a first inversion e flat tonic chord is cleverly reinterpreted as a Neapolitan 6th chord, and we're soon back in D major, where, after a few more references to the original ascending minor 7th motive that started the entire movement... We hear a fortissimo cadence in that key to end the movement. The slow movement is an interesting one, in B-flat major and marked on Dante con moto. It features a number of contrasting elements and is something of a loose-knit rondo in terms of form. The initial refrain theme appears first in the second violin, the first bar of which is repeated sequentially twice before breaking into a descending 16th note figure. Those descending sixteenths form the basis of an especially active and effective counterpoint in the second violin as the first takes up the melody an octave higher. The harmony for the first two measures is basic enough, although accented chromatic lower neighbor tones add a little local color, but it becomes more interesting in the second five bars of the refrain, which pass from a dominant pedal in the cello to an emphatic and colorful circle-of-fifths progression as the 1st and 2nd violins alternate passages of descending 16th notes. The final cadential measures of the refrain introduce some dotted 16th and 32nd note figures that are immediately picked up by the brief transition, taking us to the first episode. Here is the refrain theme going into that first transition. The first episode, the B section, begins securely in C major, but starts making its way toward F major after about six bars. It's a somewhat fragmented affair, with flourishes of thirty-second notes alternating with dotted rhythms from the transition. Descending triads make an appearance and are bandied about from instrument to instrument, frequently with offbeat motives, but the section doesn't ever really coalesce to any great extent. If the first part of this episode might be considered almost coquettish, the second part is mysterious and at times dramatic, beginning with its abrupt modulation to D-flat major. Proceeding for the most part in longer note values than the first part of the episode, it's quite active dynamically, with sforzandi and sharp crescendos and decrescendos abounding. Eventually all of this drama subsides as we enter something of a retransition which prepares us for the return of the refrain theme by quoting its opening bars from time to time once the key has changed to F major. Here is the first episode and a part of the retransition. frame theme comes back on tonic as you would expect slightly rearranged. And then, after another transition, we encounter the second episode, the C section. Only this is one of those round of forms where this episode actually serves as something of a development section. It begins in D flat major but, like so many development sections, modulates around to other keys while it makes various references to earlier themes. After a retransition, the refrain theme returns in the original tonic of B flat major, quietly in a varied but clearly recognizable form. Eventually it gives way to a more aggressive coda before coming to a close with a fragile pianissimo conclusion. It's not the most dynamic of rondos, but that's to be expected when the rondo form is used for a slow movement which emphasizes lyricism over rhythmic energy. We're going to jump now to the finale in D major, 6-8 time, and Mark Presto, where I'm going to focus on three themes, two of them from the exposition and one from the development section. The first subject, which is announced immediately, is distinctive enough with its repeated use of lower neighbor tones, but actually seems to imply a G major chord, the subdominant in the key, rather than the expected tonic chord. Of course, by measure 16, any tonal ambiguity has evaporated, and we hear a nice clear cadence on D major. The primary thematic idea used in what appears to be the modulatory transition is, on the other hand, not the least bit tonally ambiguous and never really leaves D major or even threatens to. It's almost as if Beethoven decided that before he went about the business of undermining the first key on the way to the dominant, it was necessary to first establish it more clearly than the first subject had managed to do. And as a result, this new theme could easily be heard as part two of the first subject, which then backs into the real modulatory transition. As you heard, when Beethoven does eventually begin to move away from D major and toward A major, he does so by manipulating the opening motive of the first subject and looking ahead to motives from the second subject. Here is the second subject. It's rather repetitive rhythmically, but it makes quite a notable chromatic ascent as it proceeds up the scale. After arriving at its destination, its descending leaps are also quite ear-catching. As you heard at the end of my excerpt, the second theme makes a surprising exit as it moves toward the closing section. But we're going to move on to a remarkable theme that appears in the development section. Now the development section is actually quite impressive from start to finish, focusing mostly on the motives from the first part of the first subject. But as we approach the conclusion of the development section, Beethoven introduces a new thematic idea often described as a tarantella in style, which is heard first in B minor, then A minor, then G major, although ultimately ending up on the dominant chord of A major to prepare us for the recapitulation. Here's an excerpt from the end of the development section showing the new tarantella theme, a continuation of which finally makes its way to the dominant chord. Now, of course, there can be some debate as to whether this Tarantella theme, which is subject to a bit of imitation and fragmentation as it proceeds, is really a new theme at all, since it does, after all, share some traits with earlier themes. Still, it's more a question of it being compatible with those earlier themes than actually being derived from them. And there's no question that this theme adds even more zest to what is a furiously energetic finale. We'll move on now to the string quartet number 1 in F major. This quartet is special for a number of reasons. First of all, Beethoven clearly believed, after having received advice from his violinist friend Schuppenseich and perhaps others, that it was the ideal quartet to appear first in the set. Second, because Beethoven had completed an earlier version of the quartet, and scholars have studied and compared the two versions extensively with an eye to documenting the progress made from the first to the second. Beethoven had made available a manuscript copy of the quartet to his friend Karl Amenda in June 1799. But two years later, the composer asked him not to circulate the piece because it had been extensively rewritten, stating, I have just learned how to write quartets properly. Scholars have interpreted Beethoven's remark in different ways, but it is sometimes thought to indicate that Beethoven had decided to put less emphasis on motivic integration, which, however, still remains substantial, as we will see, and more emphasis on providing clear-cut contrasts between ideas and sections. At any rate, the quartet was a very successful one, widely appreciated in his lifetime, and often described as the most impressive and popular of the set of six from Opus 18. The first movement is in F major, three-four time, and marked Allegro con brio. The short two-measure motive with which it begins dominates the first subject. It's a simple enough idea, one which basically decorates the tonic note with upper and lower neighbor tones before ending on the dominant. But it turns out to be brimming with possibilities for future development. Here is a simplified example. The motive appears, in the original or slightly varied form, three times in the first eight-bar statement, which begins piano but briefly swells with a crescendo in the second half. The statement is then repeated, forte at first, extended a little, and enlivened by a couple of diminished seventh chords, which add just a touch of tension along the way, as they swell up and then diminish quickly. Here are the first 20 measures, including the first eight-bar statement and the second slightly extended and more harmonically diversified restatement. We are by no means finished with the opening motive, however. The modulatory transition employs it almost non-stop, in various parts, for several measures, as it begins to break down the original key by means of a series of diminished 7th chords and an eventual modulation to C minor. In the process, we are introduced to a charming little counter-melody in the first violin, one that has something of an opera-buffa cheerfulness about it. The second subject, which is never to play a major role in either the development section or the coda, contrasts pleasantly with the first. It's based primarily on a series of falling thirds played by the first violin alone, with its most remarkable feature being its somewhat unusual slurring pattern that emphasizes the off-beats, in direct contrast with the heavily accented first beat patterns of the first subject. As you heard near the end of my excerpt, the second subject is interrupted by a variant of our familiar first motive, as it blends into the closing section. The first motive even makes a brief curtain call in the codetta section, along with the little opera buffa snippet I mentioned earlier. But the main function of the codetta is to provide a surge of sixteenth notes as we drive to the end of the exposition. As you might imagine, the opening motive of the first subject almost completely dominates the action in the development section, especially the first part, appearing in its original and varied forms in varied keys and at times subject to overlapping imitation, starting in the cello and working up the texture. The complexity of the texture, together with a dramatic use of diminished seventh chords and powerful weak-beat sforzando accents, makes it as compelling a development section as any we've encountered among the early chamber works. And the recapitulation is not without some serious points of interest as well, especially the very original and at times rather ominous sounding coda. But we're going to move on now to the slow movement, in D minor 9 8 time and marked Adagio Affetuoso ed Appassionato. The expressive markings for this movement are unusual and strongly suggest that this will be an adagio of notable emotional intensity. Philip Radcliffe in his book on the Beethoven quartets has pointed out that although affettuoso is not an unusual indication in the 18th century and appassionato is certainly not unusual for the 19th, the inclusion of both together in an expressive marker would have been highly uncommon at the turn of the 19th century. Furthermore, there are suggestions of a programmatic nature here, something else that would have been very unusual for the young Beethoven. The composer's friend, Karl Amenda, reported that, in response to his prodding questions, Beethoven made specific references to links between this movement and the tomb scene in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Later scholars have also found indications in Beethoven's sketches for the movement that verify this connection, although the indications are somewhat ambiguous. But what does this mean for the music itself? Are we to take this movement as a literal translation of Shakespeare's scene? Kerman and many others have referred to the emotional quality of the movement, specifically in connection with the composer's use of diminished seventh intervals, but also extending to its general tone and what Kerman refers to as its grand, melodramatic gestures. But the structure of the movement, the way that it's put together, seems to have been based primarily on purely musical logic rather than any literary model. Nevertheless, any connection to the Shakespeare scene whatsoever, particularly in combination with the exceptionally expressive markings that adorn the piece, would seem to suggest that there will be something extraordinary about this movement and it does not disappoint. After a measure of throbbing eighth notes in second violin, viola, and cello, establishing the somber D minor tonality, the first subject is presented by the first violin. Its shape is classic. It ascends slowly, with notable emotional surges created by the crescendos and decrescendos, and peaks a minor sixth higher, then, after a gradual descent, turns around to climb even higher in the fifth and sixth measures. Harmonically, the first subject is fairly economical, relying largely on tonic and dominant or leading tone substitutes, with a single secondary dominant at the conclusion to highlight the dominant chord. A two-measure link follows, which you heard at the end of my excerpt, one that features a very quiet but extremely powerful dissonance, and then the theme then returns high in the cello's range. The melody is somewhat modified this time, but still features a strong contour and some poignant yet powerful dissonances against the underlying harmony. Eventually, the first violin takes over the main melodic activity and a new transitional motive is introduced as we move temporarily to C major. 5 bars later, we have arrived in F major and the second subject is introduced. Here is the cello statement of the opening theme and the first part of the transition taking us to F major. The second violin takes the lead for the second subject, with the first answering a ninth higher. Initially, it appears as if this will be a much simpler theme in terms of emotional complexity, but that assumption is called into question as soon as the luxuriantly dissonant ninth appears in the first violin. But it is the new sixteenth note figure introduced in the third full measure in the second violin, really just an elaborate embellishment of the first full bar that is to have an even greater significance as the second subject unfolds. Here is the first part of the second subject, with the second violin initially taking the lead. As you may have noticed, the second subject seems a bit restless tonally, as it introduces a deceptive cadence, a cleverly placed Neapolitan sixth chord, and a temporary visit to F minor. But when all is said and done, we're back in F major for something of a brief closing section, really a single but very graceful new melodic phrase that begins in the viola but is then heard in violin two and violin one. This in turn passes to a poignant little phrase featuring the first violin that serves to introduce the brief cadence that closes off the exposition. Here is the graceful little closing section theme going to the poignant codetta theme. The development section begins pianissimo, with an almost ethereal statement of the sixteenth note motive from the brief closing section. Then the serious business begins. The opening bars of the first subject are stated firmly in octaves by the second violin and viola, while the first violin counters with an angry burst of thirty-second notes that swirl to a peak on B-flat, even as the lower strings pound away at first beat accents. This new burst of 30-second notes in violin one dominates the action for the next four bars in an emotionally intense atmosphere shaped by frequent sforzandi and powerful crescendos. Here is the opening of the development section. there anything in the exposition that would seem to have suggested this sort of turbulence in the development section? There certainly were some dramatic pauses and a few sharp dissonances, but little to suggest what we encounter here. So perhaps it is the tragedy embedded in Shakespeare's story that we experience here, rather than any natural outgrowth of the earlier musical materials. The first subject is reintroduced in the first violin and subsequently imitated in the viola, but the swirling thirty-second note figures continue to hover. Then, after some dramatic silences, we make our way back to D minor and the recapitulation begins quietly. But the recapitulation is no simple restatement of the earlier themes. Almost immediately, the swirling thirty-second notes return in octaves in the second violin and viola, more or less overwhelming the original lyrical theme. The second subject returns in D major, as does the brief closing section in Codetta. The coda begins with a quiet reiteration of open fifths in D minor, but before long, heavily embellished versions of the first subject are presented as the dynamic level rises to fortissimo. Newly adapted versions of the thirty-second note motives from the development section return overwhelming the first subject again and dominating to the end of the movement over a chromatically elaborated final cadence pattern. But in the end, the music ends quietly, on a tragic whisper rather than an emotional cry. This movement may or may not have been directly inspired by Shakespeare's tragedy, but regardless, it is as dramatic a slow movement as Beethoven had composed to that point. Movement three is a scherzo in F major, three-four time, and marked Allegro Molto. This is a very slight movement, even for a scherzo, and it's not hard to believe that Beethoven intended it to be exactly that, a few minutes of comic relief or something close to it, after the intense emotional experience represented by the first and second movements. Nevertheless, we're going to pass over it and take a very quick look at the finale. It's a sonata rondo in F major, 2-4 time and marked Allegro, and I'm only going to play the refrain theme, which is dominated by a flow of 16th note triplet figures followed by three staccato eighth notes. As the movement proceeds, Beethoven displays a number of interesting themes and shows that he has a few tricks up his sleeve in terms of unexpected key relationships. But on the whole, it might be fair to question whether the last two movements of the quartet fulfill the promise of the first two. The scherzo movement's simplicity and directness is no doubt a calculated effect, meant to offset the more complex emotional mood of the slow movement. The Rondo Sonata finale is as ambitious a movement as the first, but it lacks its coherence to some degree, appearing a bit unfocused despite, or perhaps because of, a wealth of memorable melodic ideas. We're going to move on now to the second quartet in the set, the quartet in G major. The first movement, into four-time and marked Allegro, has a sort of sweet simplicity about it, it seems almost a purposeful attempt to recapture the innocence of an earlier age. But there are also a few distinctive musical touches here and there that make their impact by playing off against that assumed innocence. The first subject, divided into two distinctive four-bar phrases, makes little attempt at motivic integration in direct contrast to the opening movement of the first string quartet in F major, but nevertheless manages to appear perfectly homogeneous in mood. The initial statement of the theme is followed by a variant of the first four bars that incorporates somewhat greater dynamic contrast. Those measures are then repeated and followed by a two-bar cadential tag that brings the entire first subject to a close on the tonic of G major. Let's hear that much. The modulatory transition is a little on the blunt side, especially the beginning, but nevertheless manages to play an important role later in the movement. The 3rd and 4th bars are soon separated off and serve as the vehicle for the actual modulation, which 15 measures later arrives in the new key of D major and introduces the second subject. This new theme is presented in the first violin and harmonized by the other strings in block chords for the most part, but the voice leading is not without interest, especially the cello line that shows an admirably individual identity. The use of sforzando accents combines with some touches of chromatic harmony to provide a little color for a theme that might not appear at first glance to be a particularly exciting one. The theme proceeds with a variant of the first phrase and an embellished repetition in sequential extension, until surrendering to the closing section, a section that is unremarkable melodically, but which demonstrates a nice rhythmic interplay between the parts. Eventually, the codetta adds some new motivic components, for example, sixteenth note triplets, but employs a last-minute quotation of the second phrase from the first subject to bring about the final cadence. Here's an excerpt from the beginning of the second theme through to the end of the exposition. It's in the development section that Beethoven is at his cleverest in this movement. Beethoven begins the development section where he left off, with the second phrase of the first subject, but now presented in D minor. But he quickly replaces it with the first four bars of the modulatory transition. Focusing primarily on the last two bars of that phrase, he moves from D minor to B flat and then E flat. At that point, we encounter the first subject again most notably bars 3 and 4, which then goes on to dominate much of the development section. With these bars subjected to a rather elaborate canon-like treatment at a volume level of pianissimo, the effect is both mysterious and evocative, all the more so since the thematic material didn't seem that promising the first time around. This section has reminded several commentators of similar fugal passages in early Haydn, for example, the opus 20 string quartets of the early 1770s. Beethoven keeps the interest high with his modulations, at one point settling in the remote key of E major, and by surrounding this imitative activity with a great deal of rhythmic variety in the other parts. He eventually crescendos up to forte, at which point the leading motive from the modulatory transition returns, carrying us more or less gently to what seems like the end of the development section. But Beethoven is not quite ready to bring back the first theme, at least not in its original form. Instead, we encounter a series of emphatic repeated tones which remind us of the beginning of the modulatory transition. They start in the cello and pass quickly to viola and first violin. After four bars, the first subject does return, at least the first four bars of it, in the cello. It's in the correct key of G major, but it's rather overshadowed by the disparate activities of the other voices. After four bars, the first violin takes up the subject, both phrases this time, and the second violin follows down an octave a measure later, but abandons the imitation after four bars. By now we have arrived at the equivalent of the second statement of the first subject, and from this point the recapitulation appears more normal although it is not, of course, an exact repetition of the ideas presented in the original exposition. Since this is a particularly interesting development section, I'm going to play the whole thing, going into what is initially a somewhat confusing first part of the recapitulation. We turn now to movement two in C major, three four time, and marked Adagio Cantabile. Watson describes the Adagio movement as a noble aria, and much of the ornamentation employed does seem rather vocal in nature. But not everyone has been so impressed with the movement. Kerman calls it diffuse, pretentious, and rather pointlessly ornate. The initial theme is straightforward enough beginning with an arpeggiation down the tonic triad in a stately manner before cadencing on dominant in the third measure. It's quite conservative harmonically, touching only occasionally on secondary dominant chords, but otherwise restricted to common diatonic chords. More ornate embellishments, mostly on the tonic and dominant chords, follow. But we then encounter a very quiet passage featuring staccato 16th notes. It turns out that these 16th notes constitute a sneak preview of a surprising middle section to come, one in F major, marked Allegro, and in 2-4 time. Here's a bit of it, beginning with the end of the Adagio passage, which leads up to it. insertion of an unexpected allegro section right in the middle of a slow movement is certainly an unusual device although beethoven had done something roughly comparable in his earlier serenade opus 8 but that early work was not a string quartet with all the seriousness and tradition that the genre implies and kerman again is not impressed he calls this a mousy little allegro dance movement Specifically, a parody of a contradance. It is, as he points out, one of the earliest of Beethoven's dance parodies—a genre that shows up again in some of Beethoven's later quartets and even in the Pastoral Symphony, among other works. The staccato sixteenth-note motive of the Allegro section skitters around blithely for quite a while, mostly hanging around F major, although touching on G minor, and the listener may well begin to wonder what's next on the agenda. In fact, the bustling sixteenth notes simply come to a stop, and, after a fermata, we return to the opening adagio tempo and are reintroduced to the opening theme in the cello. The countermelodies are more active this time around, and the decorative melismas even more extreme. But there is nothing really new until the last few bars, where the sixteenth note motive reappears briefly, although the tempo holds at adagio, and the tonality darkens somewhat mysteriously, with the chord that appears right before the final tonic being not the expected dominant, but an unexpected and rather romantic-sounding minor subdominant chord. Although we've skipped over the two previous scherzos, we'll spend just a little time with this one, in G major, 3-4 time, and Mark allegro. It's not that the movement is so remarkable as Beethoven's scherzos go, but because some of the melodic ideas he employs here are reminiscent of motives and themes heard in earlier movements. The first section of the scherzo begins with a motive that recalls the allegro middle section of the slow movement we just heard, in terms of style, and the opening motive of the first movement in its intervallic content. The motive that dominates the first measures here, very much in the style of a military bugle call, is first heard in the first violin, with a fragment from the motive serving as a response from the second violin. The motive shifts up a fourth for the next four bars, with the entire theme cadencing quietly on the dominant. The second, longer section of the scherzo is more aggressive, featuring an instant phrase modulation to B major and an ascending B major scale in eighth notes. Four bars later, we are back in G major with the opening motive, which then continues to dominate in one form or another for most of the remainder of this section, crescendoing at one point to a fortissimo climax. The trio, now in C major, marks a major change in mood and a new theme that, in fact, bears a strong family resemblance to the modulatory transition theme in the first movement of the quartet. The same motive begins the second, lengthier section of the trio, but is soon replaced by a more lighthearted, mostly staccato stream of eighth note triplets. This new triplet motive alternates and sometimes combines with the original motive throughout the entire section, and with the original bugle call motive also making a reappearance near the end of the section, particularly in the second violin. Here is the first part of the second section of the trio. This is not necessarily one of the most remarkable of Beethoven's scherzos from the early quartets, but it maintains a high energy level to the end and shows reasonably clear motivic links back to themes from the earlier movements that are more than just coincidental. Links of this sort are by no means common in early Beethoven, and so demonstrate a special concern on the composer's part with unifying the entire four-movement structure. The finale is in G major, two-four time, in marked Allegro molto quasi presto. The first subject begins in the solo cello, and is echoed four bars later by a variant of the initial phrase in the first violin. As all the other parts join in, the second phrase cadences on the dominant, but doesn't stay there for long. The solo cello then repeats a variant of the opening phrase, directing the key briefly through E minor and C major, while introducing a couple of new motives. After a cadence on the original tonic of G major, the earlier ideas are repeated with some variation for the next eight bars, until the entire section concludes with an emphatic cadence. This is followed by the modulatory transition that employs a new motive that is somewhat related to the first subject, and even more so to the opening motive from the scherzo movement. While Beethoven may not be exhibiting here the same sort of extreme motivic concentration that he demonstrated in the first movement of the F major quartet, he is again showing himself to be more concerned than usual with setting up links between motives and themes that occur in separate movements. This new transition motive doesn't seem to want to leave G major, however, and after nine bars, we find ourselves pausing on a D major chord, which still doesn't really feel as if it's actually the new tonic. A quick little two-bar linking motive from the first violin then delivers us, unexpectedly, to D minor, where the first subject is presented fortissimo against a dramatic new contramelody in the first violin. Then, a series of across-the-bar syncopations deposit us in D major, which is what we expected all along, and we hear the relatively delicate but quite cheerful second subject. Here's an excerpt beginning with the modulatory transition, the shift to D minor, and finally the second subject in D major. What happens next is not terribly easy to follow. The closing section is marked by a significant change in texture and motive as broad two-measure phrases unfold based on tension-generating dominant seventh and diminished chords. Eventually, and coinciding with a shift to F major, a simple little tune is introduced in the first violin. But by the time the codetta makes its appearance, we're back in D major, and the opening notes of the first subject are reintroduced and then imitated. After a quite lengthy elaboration of the tonic chord of D major, marked by a number of sforzandos, the exposition comes to a close. The development section begins by jumping up a half-step to E-flat major and quoting much of the first subject in the new key, but it quickly passes on to focus on the motive from the beginning of the modulatory transition while modulating to C minor. After more than 20 bars are spent developing this transition motive, and some skittering passage work in the first violin, a variant of the first subject occurs in C major, which is almost immediately subject to imitation over a repeated pedal on tonic. So there are a lot of things going on here. Other familiar ideas make a reappearance as we proceed, but we're not going to try to document them or the recapitulation, since we're very much out of time for this episode. We've looked at three of the six-string quartets from the famous Opus 18 set, and we'll look at the final three in the next episode.